Mutants. Since the discovery of their existence, they have been regarded with fear, suspicion, often hatred. Across the planet, debate rages. Are mutants the next link in the evolutionary chain, or simply a new species of humanity fighting for their share of the world? Either way, it is an historical fact. Sharing the world has never been humanity's defining attribute. Suffering Steve Ditko! What about this one for my nephew? A superb choice. Oh, great. Yeah, provided he has already read Infinite Crisis and 52 and is familiar with the reestablishment of the DC multiverse. <laughs> Who am I? Cypher? The gayest X-Man? I recently read this novel called Watchmen. I've never read a comic book like this. I used to read Betty comics, but that's it. I've never read, like, real, real comic books. This worked my out. Hello, hello, hello. This is Chris and Eric's Songbox Adventure. I'm Chris. And I am Eric. This week kicks off Wet Hot Mutant Summer with our 10 weeks of X-Men coverage. And it's your turn first. So what have you chosen for us to inaugurate this year's X-Men festival with? Well, I picked what is essentially a Spider-Man book. (laughs) Marvel Team Up 150. Uh, so for listeners who don't know, Marvel Team Up um, used to be a book that Marvel put out where basically every issue Spider-Man teamed up with like a different Marvel character. Uh, and the last Marvel Team Up issue, number 150, which is what we're reading today, was him teaming up with the X-Men. So yeah, uh, this was... Um, we've talked about this before how I, when I first went to a comic store for the first time as, like, a small child, I got three, well, I got four books, but only three of which we're ever going to wind up talking about on this podcast. Um, And this is the third one for us to cover, where it was, for some reason, Marvel Team Up 150, this Barry Windsor Smith cover, really grabbed my attention. I do enjoy Barry Windsor Smith. You had a good aesthetic palette even as a child apparently yeah and this was my comic book introduction to the x-men i think i must have seen i maybe hadn't seen x-men at this point actually because i it was like maybe 2002 no it was it was because spider-man one had come out and had been out long enough that i had seen it not in theaters because my parents didn't take me to see PG-13 movies in theaters at that point. Um, so it might even be 2003 when I got this. But probably early 2003. Had you seen, like, X-Men Evolution or the 90s cartoon? Or was this, like, literally your first X-Men media at all? It's this or the Brian Singer films. I couldn't tell you which was first. Okay. Um, all of my X-Men cartoon watching has been as a late teen through adult because I am of the era, like, I first started reading comic books month to month in 2005 with uh, Ultimate Spider-Man number 81, which was at the same time that House of M was happening. I am of the comic book generation that did not really have X-Men. Like, when I got into comics fully all the way, like, okay, I'm going to read a lot of these. 
the X-Men got blown up as a franchise. Yeah, like post Morrison, maybe even post Whedon. Yeah, I would be, I mean, I don't, how long did Whedon's, like how late, like the decimation happens at some point during Astonishing X-Men and they just don't mention it because Whedon was really late with scripts. Yeah, I'm not sure how long he was actually so, on it, since, like, in theory, it's only, like, two years worth of books, except if all the delays, there's probably more, like, three or four. Yeah, like, the decimation happens in the middle of it, because the X-Men team that's in House of M is the astonishing X-Men X-Men team, because that was the big team at the time. Yeah, but speaking of hyper-specific X-Men teams... Oh. This one in this issue. We've got them on the cover and it's it's great. Uh, it just this is literally this is could have only happened in a four month span of time where you would get this lineup for an X-Men team. Yeah, we've got Rachel Summers, Nightcrawler, Colossus, and Rogue. And we were trying to place this before we started recording. Because this is back when they still put some degree of effort into not having characters in a million places at once to try and make things possible to slide into place continuity-wise. So it looks like this is potentially at that point when Wolverine and Kitty Pride are in their own miniseries and Storm is depowered and like Cyclops and yeah. the other originals aren't there. So we get this truly bizarre little quartet led by Nightcrawler. This is Nightcrawler's kooky quartet. Yeah. To pull to pull the Avengers reference there. But yeah, no, this came out the same week as Kitty Pride and Wolverine number four. So this is like that moment. Storm is like off trying to find herself post the powering. Um Rogue has like very recently joined the team. Rachel has even more recently joined the team. She can't have been around long. I'm trying to remember exactly when she comes in. Um, Cyclops is off getting married to Madeline Pryor. And then the other original X-Men are either dead in the case of Jean or hanging out with the Defenders. Yeah. And Wolverine is in Japan with Kitty Pride, who's possessed by a ninja demon guy or something. I can't remember what that miniseries was about. I know the guy's name was Ogun. Yeah, and on the cover, we just get Spider-Man and these four X-Men all just sort of standing solemnly with their arms crossed in various uncomfortable ways as, like, the text box reads, and now a moment's silence before the action begins. And, like, over top of the logo, it's the last Marvel team-up, so everyone's sad. This was the last issue, so they're all having a moment of silence for the death of the series. Yeah. They should do this more often on the covers of last issues. It should just be everyone looking, like, vaguely disappointed at the book being over. A little bit of a funeral vibe. And even the corner box, because this is back when corner boxes were still a thing with, like, the Marvel logo, and then, like, a little piece of art of the main character over top the price and the issue number, the corner box art is like Spider-Man with his back to the viewer, walking away, looking dejected. He's like fully doing the Spider-Man no more thing, but he's still wearing the outfit. He's just like, I'm not teaming up with other Marvel heroes anymore. I'll have to settle. I've done for this only for 150 issues. 
I'm only gonna go and be in my four different solo comics now. Thank you. Yeah, but anywho, yeah, that's sort of the historical context this issue takes place within. Very specific moment for the X-Men and a specific moment in this title as it basically tries to go out on a bang, I would say. Like, okay, it's not going to be sort of a random uh, mix-up of characters. It's going to be Marvel's top two franchises all at once. And before we really dive into the issue proper, just going to go ahead and do the obligatory roll call. We have Louise Simonson as the writer, Greg LaRoque as penciler, Mike Esposito, inker, Janice Chang is the letterer and colorist Bob Sharon. And yeah, this is Jim Shooter era. Yeah. And it opens up with a whole thing about Spider-Man being poor. Uh, every Spider-Man book has to open. It, you either open with Spider-Man fighting a bad guy or Spider-Man going, oh no, my wallet. Yeah. Specifically uh... Spider-Man coming into his apartment through the skylight to hear his landlord knocking on the door, threatening to break in because he's late on rent. Here's the thing, for a New York apartment, this is fucking huge. Yeah, like, I know financially things have only gotten worse since, but I'm like, I suspect this was probably at least a little unrealistic even at the time. Yeah, yeah, no way. Not with how poor Peter is, he wouldn't have an apartment this big. He he's single. Well, he's dating Black Cat, but since she won't actually date Peter Parker and only date Spider-Man, he's single. He's economically single, yeah. And yeah, is doing like, a freelance position. He's single enough that someone's let him get away with doing one of those, like, fish on a platter on the wall things. Those are such a weird, specific, old, like, sitcom decor thing. What Who strange let him do taste. That? Mary Jane needs to get back in here. I mean, he's dating Black Cat right now, but, like, someone needs to get back in here and be like, Peter, what the fuck is that? Why? The rest of the decor is harder to make out because it's more just sort of, like, roughly drawn, just sort of, like, shapes that aren't, like, hyper-detailed since we're seeing from across the room. But we got, like, his little 1980s TV, his stacks of stuff. There's one decoration that from the shape of it, I'm like, does Spider-Man ha randomly have one of those, like, Buddha statues of the, like, large, overweight Buddha just sitting next to his TV? Because I don't think there's any Buddhist Spider-Man history, but I can't think what else that's meant to be. Yeah, no, I, I have no idea, but you're right, that is what that looks like. Why does he have that? That's, yeah, that's really weird. Well. Spider-Man hears his landlord coming and decides, I'm going to escape back out the skylight. Fuck this. <laughs> if I'm not here, she can't make me pay. Uh, but while he's been in there, a bunch of um, women have shown up to sunbathe on the top of the roof, which, like, I guess you gotta do what you gotta do in New York. Yeah, specifically these women that are not his roommates, but, like, What's the term? Housemates, I guess. Like, they all live in the same apartment complex. And I guess he just has to worry about checking through the window first anytime he wants to sling on out or else, or else his cover will be blown by him being spotted slinging out by a bunch of half-naked women. 
for some reason his spider sense warns him that they're there and i'm like that danger seems a little too like not literal physical danger for the spider sense to detect to me i don't know i think it's kind of funny it it is kind of funny the spider is like watch out they're gonna see you yeah but i'm like degrees of danger does it go up like I, I i it's just like a little minor a flash but then when he's gonna get like electrocuted by electro it does like a full blown is that what we're doing here imagining him just like having spider sense at any minor inconvenience like no one can ever accidentally step on his foot or run into him or any sort of awkward social anything because he has just the vibes of danger to alert him before anyone so much as runs into him in a crowded room i think there's a robot chicken sketch where his like spider sense goes off so much but he gets really pissed with it and just starts ignoring it but then winds up like dying sounds about right because it like just goes off for literally anything like he's crossing the road and it goes off and he's like i know i'm crossing the road i'm looking but then Uh, it you know it goes off and he gets decapitated or something because he wasn't paying attention to it yeah But here, he just has to settle for going back into his apartment, pretending like he was taking a shower so he couldn't hear the landlord over the sound of the water. And we just get their little conversation where he He doesn't get his hair wet. Yeah, (laughs) that's I. He says that he was under the water. That's why he couldn't hear her. But all he's done is strip down and put a towel around him and his hair isn't actually wet. (laughs) Just completely dry. But he could have just been watching TV. Just turn the TV on. But anywho, he tries to further distract her by complaining about the sunbathers who the landlord just tells him tough shit. They pay their rent. Where's yours? And he just does another delay of like, I'll get it to you Thursday. There's the whole you'd better type thing. And then we get... Uh, just Peter's inner monologue about how broke he is. He's been eating peanut butter for a week and he needs to get a present for his Aunt May and he doesn't have the rent money. So it's all just I'm poor and upset and stressed and I have so many things I need to pay for. The previous issue was a team up with Cannonball uh, from the New Mutants and they were both trying to find a hat to buy for their aunt and elderly mother, respectively. That's a fun little bit of continuity, especially yeah. for like a series like this, where I wouldn't be surprised to like not see those things. Well, the last, I don't know, Louise Simons had been writing it for a while. Uh, speaking of which, another reason we're reading this is to highlight Louise Simonson who we haven't talked about yet in X-Men month, but is like hugely important to the history of the X-Men because she was the editor of a huge chunk of the Claremont run. I don't think we've discussed anything she's written before, right? Like, I don't think we've even covered a non-X-Men thing. I think this is just the first time. Yeah, this is the first time we've covered Louise Simonson, uh, even though she killed Superman. Yeah. She's done some big stuff and she's coming back two X-Men to write a Jean Grey ongoing series set right now in the comics. Like, not one of these flashback series they've been doing. Yeah. Um. Oh, and she wrote X-Factor for years. She, like, well, 
she fixed that team after the whole premise of that book was garbage. She did what she could, yeah. I I like that book. After she gets in there, you know, it takes a couple issues to sort of start getting things a bit more on track, but I think it really picks up. Yeah. And at the same time as she was doing all this work as an editor, she was also writing Marvel Team Up for a while for like the last, I want to say it was nearly 20 issues or something was her run on this book. Like it's a, it's a fairly impressive run, not by the standards of the day, but by like today's standards, impressive. Yeah, a fairly healthy chunk to stay on one title. You know, in, in the days of here, you get five issues. This this we've announced an ongoing is going to be for five issues, quote unquote ongoing. Yeah, I'm still waiting to hear that Captain Britain's getting more than just five issues. I fear you will be out of luck. Yeah, especially after Knights of X. I don't know what happened. Everyone's just stopped reading it. I'm like, it's just as good as it was. Well, back to this comic. Uh, back to 1984. Uh, we cut to. So they say it's above an Asian jungle, but like characters speak Korean later. So this is above Korea. Yeah, that's a hyper weird little caption box. Because like it's already been established. Unless I'm wrong, I'm pretty sure at the time that they specified that the whole Xavier, Kane, Marco military find the gym thing was Korea specifically. And then, like you just said, characters are speaking Korean, so I don't know. It is strange that it's, like, not made immediately clear just to then immediately be made clear by the context. Like, I initially am like, I kind of get it, because it's the 80s now, and you're like, well, if Xavier and Kane Marco are veterans of the Korean War, that ages them. Whereas if we say Asian jungle, like, it could have been now. Sure. But, like, because that's not stated, it was, but then, you know, they show what is, I assume, meant to just be the North Korean army here. And we specifically get, like, one of those editor's notes with the asterisk referring to the military personnel's dialogue that says translated from the Korean. So it is, like, explicitly stated in book that the characters are speaking Korean. Of course, I think nowadays this is the Sion Kong thing. Yeah. The made up the made up country that replaces all the Korean and Vietnam war references, which is symptomatic of being far too concerned about a comics problem to recognize that it just creates a brand new real world problem. But regardless like, of which country it is, essentially what we're doing here is watching Juggernaut get a lift by airplane and then just jumping out of the damn plane, no parachute because he doesn't need it, and he lands near a military site, everyone shoots at him, it doesn't do anything because he's the Juggernaut, and we're basically just showing right off the bat, remember the Juggernaut? Nothing can hurt him, remember? And he just sort of dispatches the tanks and goes about his way. This was my introduction to Juggernaut. That makes sense. It's it's not a bad introduction. Yeah, the thing about his introduction and the way all of the characters are introduced is, I think, partially due to the era this is, and then also partially due to the nature of the title, is that 
every character gets a little bit of setup or expository dialogue that would kind of explain who they were and what their powers were and what like the minimum information needed about what their general deal is in case you're a new reader who doesn't know whether that's because like oh you're a spider-man reader and you're picking the book up because he's on the cover but you don't read x-men or also just sort of this period's general trying to do that frequently of like any issue can be someone's first issue but like we yeah, see that Jim here of the philosophy. juggernaut and then like the individual x-men get little bits of it later in the issue as well the thing is this was my first issue this was really helpful you were in fact the one that this was meant for and it sounds like it succeeded yeah well like i would have had a fucking clue who juggernaut was if he didn't rant about who he is for three pages yeah i didn't even have the vin jones like weird awful bad version of juggernaut from x-men 3 to go off of yeah and he of any x-villain especially sort of needs the setup since you can't even hand wave it as just he's an evil mutant because well they he is do not. It every adaptation and it pisses me off i'm every time i'm like he's not a fucking mutant I am one of those people who is overly attached to the ruby gem of Sidorak because of this book. Yeah, it's one of those things where it's just like, everyone wants to use him because of how iconic the image is, but no one wants to put in the effort of doing the backstory. So they're just like, just make him a mutant. Just do what you want to do anytime you're trying to simplify the sort of side bits of X-Men continuity. But then that's just Unus the Untouchable. Just do Unus the Untouchable. Juggernaut's cooler, I think. The Juggernaut is extreme. Juggernaut's way cooler. But I think part of what's cool is he just found a gem in the jungle one day, and now he's like this all the time. Yeah. Which, essentially what he's doing here is going to find that gem again, because as we're treated to shots of him, like digging his way through a bunch of rubble he sort of explains his backstory to us and his current objective he's talking about his friend black tom cassidy and how it's his birthday and he wants to get him a present and so his, his idea yeah more on that in a minute but <laughs> his idea is that he's thinking oh yeah that gym that I touched once on ambiguous number of years ago gave me a lot of power, but I just kind of left it buried there in the dirt. Let me go dig it up again, and I'll bring it so Tom can touch it, and then he can be like me. He'll just be a second juggernaut. And yeah, he just digs down the little like shrine to Cytorak with the ruby is still like not ransacked everything's still right where it belongs since he left it buried under tons of rubble the last time he does an indiana jones and he gets a i love the shrine's weird goblin face thing i'm like what is that is that ciderac is that what ciderac looks like it's right. so weird it's so visually like disconnected from his look as the juggernaut which i actually think is kind of neat yeah, I honestly am not sure if there's ever been a storyline that was like, 
here's Siderak himself. I'm honestly not sure if that's ever happened. If not, someone's gotta do it. I feel like it must have happened by nature of how long the character's been around, but I've certainly never heard of it happening. Maybe there's a forgotten issue from 1997 or something that wasn't very good, so no one talks about it. You know what? That's when it would have happened, actually, because the late 90s are really obsessed with 60s X-Men for some fucking reason. Yeah. Which I can never figure out, because like the X-Men were good in the 70s, and especially the 80s, guys. What are you doing? But anyway, you already sort of brought it into question. Should we go ahead and just discuss the juggernaut Black Tom Cassidy dynamic of it all? Yeah, yeah, because uh, as a child, I did not have the context to read this and pick up on their whole thing. But um, they're basically Felmer and Louise, but they're two dudes. Yeah, and it's like... Oh, Bonnie and Clyde, but two dudes, actually. And they're specifically, largely in this period, written as, like, lovers, as being some degree of romantically involved. And reading this issue specifically, it's like, I don't fully get that vibe. And I don't know if it's because Simonson just has a bit of a different take on them, and doesn't have the same memo as Claremont does, or if it just wasn't... for Claremont, so she must have known what Claremont was doing with them. Yeah, but I'm also just like, I guess I don't know if we're on the same page as this. Do they read like lovers to you here? Because to me, it's like, oh, maybe they're friends, and maybe they have like some pining. But the way they talk to each other is like a bit too distant to feel like they're actually in a relationship, at least as far as I read it. It feels like Juggernaut's really into Black Tom. And I will say, so later we're going to see Black Tom's birthday party, which has like everybody else there as a woman. And they're all hanging off of him. And they're all hanging off of him, but he's also just completely ignoring them the moment the Juggernaut walks into the room. Yeah. Like, they literally just disappear from the, the scene. So, like, there is some of this there, but also, like, yeah, this isn't, this is definitely one of the the comics where it's just, like, this one, I could actually see you not picking up on this as an adult, whereas a lot of that other stuff from around this time and earlier, I'm like, yeah, no, if you're reading this not as a child, you are going to pick up on the fact that these two are dating. Yeah, whereas here it's like, maybe they're interested in each other. Or maybe they just have a bit of a weird and not fully lovey-dovey relationship. Like, it's not as clear. They have some... There's, like, the way it ends as well, I think, is is quite, like... We'll get into it when we get there. But, like, there's some bits of it where I'm like, I can see that, like, Simonson is at least taking enough effort to, like, not discount what Claremont was doing. But admittedly, this was the Jim Shooter era where you couldn't actually just have anything happen explicitly ever when it comes to any gay characters because Jim Shooter was a, well, well actually is, he's still alive, uh, a massive homophobe. Yeah. But anywho, Juggernaut gets the gem of Ciderac again. And we then cut back to New York City with Peter Parker at his apartment where he runs into the fellow tenants 
who were sunbathing earlier on the roof and they start to get along well. Um, They basically talk about being wannabe models and essentially they invite him up on the roof of them to take their pictures and treat him to a nice meal. They're all sort of getting ready to like have a picnic on the roof and Peter who specifically in his fought bubbles has been living off of saltines is more than happy to get a chance to get some actual food. Yeah, it's it's the occasional thing that happens about once every 30 issues where Peter Parker gets a lucky break. Yeah. In this case, basically single Peter Parker because he's kind of dating Black Cat maybe, gets to hang out with three women in swimsuits, possibly get paid to take their pictures, and gets a free meal. Yeah. That's about as good as it gets for 80s Peter Parker. Because the rest of the time, it's all alien costume and, like, Raven the Hunter knocking you out and burying you alive. Yeah, but while he's having his brief little moment of good luck, we get our first intro we to the X-Men. We finally get the X-Men. Yeah, we get a transition to the Xavier Estate, where, as we mentioned earlier, the X-Men lineup at this point is Colossus, Rogue, and Rachel Summers, as led by Nightcrawler. We introduce them with one of your obligatory Danger Room sessions to quickly introduce the reader to who these characters are and what all of their powers are. So they're all just fighting a bunch of, like, laser-guided missiles. You know, we get Colossus with his steel skin and his strength. We get Rogue, her flight, her strength. We get her getting knocked down and Colossus coming over to help her and her just being like, don't touch me. If you touch me, I'll get your powers and your memories. At this point in time, it's less She was the one character I already knew. I was like, she's got the white streak. That's Rogue. Talking about it now, or even like in the early 2000s when you would have been reading it, it's like everyone knows who Rogue is, but... In 1984-85, it's a bit less silly that someone might not know. Uh, yeah, well, because she wasn't... She hadn't been in the X-Men that long. Just because, like a couple like, years, yeah. Yeah, because Days of Future Past was 1980 when that ended, which we've covered already. And yeah. then before Rogue joins, you have the whole, um, like, Brood Saga. And, like, Rogue was a villain for a while as well hanging out with her moms so it like she's maybe been in the x-men for at most two years worth of comics i'd say at this point yeah and in addition to them we get just like some of nightcrawlers bamfing around and we get the even newer addition rachel summers who in order to convey her powers to the reader we get her telepathically summoning everyone else to launch and then using her telekinesis to place all their individual plates on the table. So we literally get Rachel's whole deal in the course of two panels, power-wise. And then three panels later, we get the backstory thing of her turning to the reader and going, what's going on? 
things are different here than in the future I come from. Is my future still going to exist? This is what my problem is. That's my whole deal. I don't belong anywhere. So Rachel is one of my top five favorite X-Men. It is absolutely hilarious trying to remember, like, what did I think of this character as a child? Because I'm not entirely sure that I didn't just, like, skim over the future stuff and just assume that this was, like, some weird version of Jean. You know, as someone who would have only seen X-Men 1, maybe X-Men 2. Yeah, because she's one of those characters where it's like, she is very cool, however... She's so complicated. Yeah, because she's so... And I don't mean this in a negative way, but because she is so inherently derivative of pre-existing characters and storylines, it's like everything interesting about her comes from a context that's so specific that you kind of have to already be bought into the X-Men's whole deal. You know, like there's a reason why she's never picked to be in the movies or like the main cast of the cartoons because she's never been adapted at all. Yeah. I can't think of any example ever. Cause Cable and Bishop stole her lunch. That's why. Yeah. Yeah. They came in and they were the exact same thing, except they're like rad. They're men with guns. Yeah. They have big time to be like cool for the nineties. Yeah. Whereas in the eighties, Claremont was like, what if, this really traumatized young woman from the future who I'm going to heavenly imply is, like, gay is going to show up instead. But then in the 90s, they were like, what if people came from the future and they were, like, the Terminator? Yeah. Which Cable is just the Terminator. Yeah. Whereas Rachel is just a cool, sort of displaced and anxious butch telepathic lesbian. And in this, so... Like, the main important thing that happens here, aside from establishing the X-Men at this point, is that in, like, well, they hear about the Juggernaut, like, going to Korea on the news. And Rachel, like, realizes that he perhaps wants to share the power because in her future, he did share this power with other people. Well, in her future, because the thing, the other thing about Rachel is she's technically not from this future. She's from a different future. She's from Earth. Is it nine twenty eight? Does the days of future past Earth? I will never know the specific numbers. I think it's that. The only numbers I ever know, like for sure, are six one six and sixteen ten. But yeah, Rachel sort of has that moment of being like, "Oh, is he carrying the gym to give the power to someone else?" And just the whole, oh, what's his morality like right now question. Like, it's not immediately like, oh, it's definitely a villainous thing. Well, the weird thing about this comic as well, like, certainly with the hindsight of the last 20 years of comics, is that in Rachel's future, the pet, one of the pet who actually, like, has a redemptive arc isn't Juggernaut, it's Black Tom. Whereas Juggernaut is the one who in like, the future comics has a redemptive arc in, like, the 2000s or whatever and becomes a just inconsistently villainous character depending on whether or not they want to do a thing where people have to stop the juggernaut. Yeah. And Black Tom, like, murders a child instead. <laughs> like, Black Tom gets worse and juggernaut gets, like, but the opposite happened in Rachel's future. So she's, like, 
reluctant to beat the crap out of Black Tom because from her perspective, he's like a hero. Yeah. Which is a thing that I think only comes up in this because I'm pretty sure this is the only time that they like meet. Like, I think that there isn't a big juggernaut story while she's on the X-Men. I don't think well, so. The, no big Black Tom story. Yeah, I can't think of any. But there's some juggernaut stuff in Excalibur that's very fun. But meanwhile, Peter Parker is relaxing in a better mood after getting to eat something other than crackers and is just sort of going over his plans for how he's going to try and raise some money, ideas for what he's going to try and photograph. And he has the TV on. He sees the broadcast about the juggernaut as well. And then as he's suiting up to go hunt him down, he just delivers a bunch of expository thought balloons about, like, the last time they fought, because this takes place after the iconic Spider-Man juggernaut fight that had to do with the whole Madam Web stuff. And it specifically places the story after that, and also after the black suit period or at least the initial period he's wearing his classic costume here and he's talking about having taken the symbiote to reed richards to check out so it's a post secret wars pre-venom that brief little period of time it's even better than that this is such a specific moment because this is post him getting rid of the symbiote but pre it leaving the lab and coming back and him properly rejecting it, which is what does eventually lead to Venom, but also pre-Black Cat making a cloth black suit for him because she liked the look better. Yeah, hyper-specific moment. This is another one where, like, this is, like, this is probably a, maybe a six-month period this could have happened in, same as, like, the X-Men. It's like, oh, yeah, this only could have happened in this four-month period. We then but to get... me, this is what Spider-Man, like, this is just what 80 Spider-Man looks like, because this was the first one I read. Yeah. So, like, when as a kid, I was like, okay, I had the early 2000s issue, and I had this issue. I'm like, so this is what old Spider-Man comics are like. And then this is what new Spider-Man comics are like, because back then, the um, JMS run was relatively new. Or was yeah. new, actually. Uh, and we... so we go to Black Tom's birthday party, where Juggernaut has arrived in full costume because once he gets his helmet bolted on, it takes forever to get off. And I'm, that's just, it's, I'm like, does he have like a power bolting? Like, it is screwed on. That's just like, what a ridiculous outfit. But he shows up as Black Tom is surrounded by the earlier mentioned groupies, hands him a box. And when Black Tom touches it, he starts growing, his clothes are getting shredded, um, he's getting a portion of the juggernaut power, and he's just screaming, like, what the fuck is happening to me, essentially. Well, he rips out of all of his clothes, too. Like, we get shirtless Black Tom for the rest of the story. And they're just sort of fighting over it. He's just like, what have you done to me? Turn me back. And when Juggernaut's just like, you don't like it, I can't turn you back. And Black Tom Maybe you should have told him what it was, you idiot. <laughs> and also probably not done it in front of all these random women. 
who you don't know, but... And have completely disappeared. Yeah, they basically, like, all run out the door in fear after seeing a man, like, grow several sizes, which, between that and seeing a supervillain stroll in, it makes sense why they would leave, but... Black Tom's a supervillain, too, and that he was in his outfit. Like, has he never been on the news before? Yeah, I guess maybe the girls do know who he is and just get scared off by the fight, but... I mean, I would run too and Juggernaut and him start fighting. I'm just sort of like, who are these women? What is the space he's rented in New York City? It is weird, but yeah, Exhibit A in this not being a particularly healthy relationship is that... In his anger, Black Tom punches Juggernaut out of the fucking window down to the street. In fairness, that doesn't hurt him. In fairness, yeah. Uh, but he get... of course just climbs back up and then does the same to him. <laughs> yeah, and we get just like a bunch of dialogue from Juggernaut being like, you hit me, you're supposed to be my friend and you hit me. And... We just get a bunch of coded lovers beating the shit out of each other. There's also sort of the element to it where it like it doesn't raise it directly in the moment, but when it like reminds you of Juggernaut's backstory later, it's just like, oh yeah, not only does he not like getting hit because no one likes being hit, but also he was abused as a child. So this is a literal trigger thing for him. Was that explicitly established at this point? It's in the backstory in the latter part of it when Rogue touches him and, like, gets his memories. Oh my god, you're right. Yeah, like, they don't, like, they could have stated it more explicitly, but it's pretty clear. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a bit like the, the, yeah, like the um stuff around the same time of magic where it's like, I mean, we're not gonna say it, but you know what this is about. Yeah, and essentially the two Black of them... Tom, bad boyfriend, which, not a shocker, but still. Yeah, neither of these people are particularly well-adjusted. So we get these two possible boyfriends beating the shit out of each other, Um, during which point Kane actually explains to him... I don't know if we've stated explicitly Kane is Kane Marco. That's the Juggernaut's name. Kane is, as they're fighting, like explaining just like, that was the Ruby of Ciderac. It gave you some of my power. And it, just sort you're of- You're the Juggernaut too now. And they explode a gas tank. Yeah, as it just sort of like blows up around them as they're fighting. And Juggernaut talks about actually being able to feel it because instead of both of them- getting the typical juggernaut power essentially what's happened is that it's just been split between the two of them so they're each half as strong which is a cool twist i like that which also just sort of helps nerf the potential of the gym to be like no a villain cannot just pass it around to an entire group and instantly have an unbeatable army it just sort yeah. of now that the gem's back in play you can't and just like, <laughs> just like imagining like 
that would break the comics. I mean, not that there aren't a million other things that could break the comics narratives already, but just like the idea, like, well, every villain would just fight over this, and whichever one gets their hands on it first would just hand it to all of their minions. Yeah. Spider-Man is swinging through the city, hoping to not only help stop the fight, but also get some nice pictures of it that he can sell to the Bugle to buy Aunt May that hat. And... The the best thing is he doesn't know who Black Tom is, so he just assumes that Black Tom is a different guy trying to stop Juggernaut, and it's like, oh, cool, I don't have to do it for a change, and starts taking pictures. And then, like, Black Tom and Juggernaut turn around and see him, and are like, oh, let's just team up and get him. He's like, oh, shit, never mind. Yeah. Like, he assumes for a second that Black Tom is, like, some superhero. And then the first part of their fight is just, like, a lot of the typical thing of, like, Spider-Man weaving web fences, trying to manipulate the way that, like, the Juggernaut is charging, resulting in, like, him accidentally getting flung into Tom, and then the two of them, like, destroying a building, but ultimately they get the upper hand because they're two juggernauts, and that's just what makes sense. And just when it seems like... Black Tom still has his, like, stick that he can use to shoot laser bolts. Whatever his actual mutant power is, which I can never remember. It's, like, actually something plant-based, but for some reason it's mostly laser bolts. Yeah. And just when it looks like Spider-Man is actually in deep shit the x-men show up again just the world's weirdest lineup well especially since we haven't mentioned this yet but this is also the era where rachel summers does not have a costume so she is just a lady in a jacket and some jeans yeah and although the others have costumes they're a bit odd in that colossus is more or less in a wrestling singlet with a deep v and then I like what Rogue's wearing, but this is the sort of period of Rogue where she'll just be wearing, like, an oversized caftan or sweater and then just, like, leggings so that every inch of skin is, like, covered, but covered in, like, not so much a superhero costume so much as things that she could have picked up at Macy's. She looks good. Yeah, the only one wearing his normal outfit is Nightcrawler. Because almost no one ever makes him wear anything different because it was just the perfect design from day one. There's no, there's never, you can't improve it, frankly. Yeah. Um, I do like this, I like this period for Rogue where she's wearing just like a bodysuit and then stuff over it. I prefer it when she gets like the specific color coding where it's like the black bodysuit and then normally like green clothes with like a bit of a white accent over the top. Like, because it's just a more consistent look, whereas, like, this period, I think she just kind of did different things. Yeah, it's like, there is a touch of the green and, like, her boots and her gloves. I like how it looks overall. It's just sort of, like, the pedestrian aspect of it sort of just helps it stand out from other characters at the period. But yeah, it's less, like, specific and, like, branded than it's gonna get later on. Um yeah. If it was, like, a more typical X-Men lineup, she would look, like, I think cooler for being so pedestrian in her streetwear. But, like, the thing is, three of these characters are wearing 
relatively normal clothes. Yeah. And everybody just sort of brawls. Um, I don't know, like, if you have any specific moments you want to mention. For me, one of the main things of note is just that at one point when they finally rip off Juggernaut's helmet, he's just like, you fought, bitch. I have another helmet underneath of it. Because that's how this I love shit that always shit goes. So much. Yeah. You should have done this years ago. This is so great. And this one is like much more like tightly fitted around his head. It's more of like a like steel cap as opposed to the standard like circular helmet that he usually has. But yeah, it's a nice moment of just like, I know how you get me every time. You're not going to get me this time. And from this point, it basically becomes a lot of like rogue stealing everyone's powers and sort of like losing control and trying to fight it. And we get like the panels of her like seeing Kane's life and just like his hatred of Xavier. We get the talk of like the abusive dad to include the image of like a fist holding a belt. So, you know, like about as obvious of a signifier as we could get without the dialogue specifically saying, and essentially, um, it's stated that apparently this is because he was banished to a prep school for gifted young intellectuals where he couldn't possibly keep up with the difficult lessons. But like, this, I think, definitely also has a vibe with the whole, you know, Kane and Black Tom of it all. The mortified father line, especially. Oh, like a potential, like, sexuality thing of it? Yeah, because, like, this backstory does, like, him being bullied by other kids and, like, his mortified father beating him does fit with this idea that he is, like, gay. Yeah, I suppose that is a way you could read it. Um... There is definitely, like, yeah, like, there's definite, like, abuse going on either way. And yeah, I suppose that is a lens you could add to it of, like, oh, it could have potentially had that sort of, like, suspicion of sexuality element to it, too. Um, With regards to the, like, gone to a prep school and not kept up with the lessons well, that just sort of has the note of... One of the other differences between Cain and Xavier is not just that Cain is a human, but that Cain is really dumb in every version of the character. He is simply not book smart, and that just gives him yet another thing to be, like, envious of his brother for. Yeah. Yeah, Cain is pretty much defined by being, like, really big and quite dumb. Which, like, to be fair, he hasn't really had any support of anything in his life so it makes sense that when he spent his entire childhood and adulthood being abused he's not really taking the time to fucking get advanced lessons and shit you know the best thing that ever happened to him was the korean war yeesh yeah that said his anger and frustration at like basically his entire life is enough to overwhelm rogue and she starts attacking everyone Because, and this is something that doesn't happen in the movies, so this was my introduction to this concept, 
Rogue, when she touches people in the comics, absorbs part of their minds as well. Yeah, I guess the, the movies of... really don't do that, do they? I hadn't thought no, about but... it, but yeah, like Anna Paquin never really does that. That doesn't happen. The movies focus on the her touch will kill you stuff, and they ignore the like her touch will her touching you will give her an identity crisis stuff. Yeah. Because they came up with the idea of her having to heal herself by stealing Wolverine's powers. So I guess they didn't want to make it like, and now she's got Wolverine's baggage too somehow. Or like have her find out more about Wolverine's past before we want the viewer to know so we can still milk that for all it's worth. You know, that would have been a good way of actually setting up the sequel. Because they kind of do that anyway. Yeah. But yeah, they left out like, the thing, the, the most interesting thing about Rogue's powers to me is the mind stuff, though. It is, yeah. That's the best stuff because that's how you, what, uh, like the Carol Danvers of it all is just so good. It's consistently great. It's the she most. She touched Carol Danvers too long and now Carol just lives in her head. It's the most thematically interesting, but also the most inherently complicated. So it makes sense that certain adaptations would drop it when they were already trying to do a bunch of other stuff. Did the Evolution cartoon do that with Rogue? It's honestly oh, yeah, been no, they too... did do the memory things in that, yeah. Yeah, it's been too long for me to really remember, but yeah, I believe they did at least a little bit of it. They do, just nothing ever goes as far as the Carol stuff, but like that just cements that that's by far the best Rogue adaptation. No offense to Anna Paquin, who could have absolutely nailed this role if she was given anything fun to do but But, she just has to brood and feel bad for two hours yeah meanwhile in this book once rogue starts to get a bit more of a grip on what's happening um juggernaut lifts up the gym and essentially at this point has got all of the power back to himself uh, Black Tom is reverted to his normal self. Juggernaut is full power juggernaut. And rather than risk anyone else steal part of his power, he just flings the thing into outer space. He just chucks he it into it the into fucking orbit. sky. I need to know now. I need to look and actually see whether anyone has brought this thing back from orbit for a storyline. Yeah. Or whether they've just been, great, juggernaut's juggernaut, we can just leave it. Yeah, it's sort of like an obvious open thing that someone could do, but I don't know that anyone's ever actually cared to. And after he does that, he and Black Tom just peace out. Like, for whatever reason, they're not really invested in the fight anymore, and they just escape through the sewer. Well, now that Tom is just Tom, he's really outclassed by basically everyone else. He's got a stick that he can use to fire lasers. But he also does kind of need to use it to walk because he's got, like, that bad leg. And then you've got Spider-Man plus four pretty powerful X-Men. Like, sure, Kane would be fine, but, like, I get piecing out here. Fair enough, yeah, like... There's no benefit to fighting aside from, I guess, killing the X-Men. But they just want money. Fair enough, and they, they also have... They want money have... and no jail time. And they also have the rest of Black Tom's birthday, too get up to whatever they may get up to together on. And they have like their little scene of talking to each other and Black Tom being like, 
I learned something from this. I think I understand you better now. I'm not mad at you at all. You are being thoughtful. And it's just sort of them, like, having their conflict resolved and being bros again. Having a laugh about getting to beat the X-Men up for a little bit. Yeah, which Black Tom says was a good present in and of itself. He just enjoyed the fight. Yeah, like, it's it's, it's a nice enough moment for these two going off to go back to just doing their normal thing. Yeah. I have no idea when they both show up next together. I I remember, like, Juggernaut stuff in um, Excalibur that's after this, but I don't know what their next, like, team-up was. No idea, but no sooner than they leave do police sirens start coming to deal with the obvious damage so both spider-man and the x-men peace out and our little momentary happy ending for peter is that he develops his photos and the action ones are fucked up from web fluid getting in the camera mid-battle but he does still have the bikini photos And it just so happens the Bugle is running a piece about the heat wave. And so they will gladly take the photos of Buxom Babes and Swimwear to go along with just an article that's just saying, it's hot in New York City. And yeah, his boss is just like, I told you to do some more subject matter besides just superheroes. Good on you. And Peter's going to get some money for him. And assumedly will be able to pay his rent and get Aunt May her hat as a present. I love Robbie Robertson, and I think this is the first time Robbie Robertson has appeared in anything that we've covered. And I just need to say that he is he is top five Spider-Man supporting characters. Easy. Yeah, he's cool. This is probably his first appearance on the podcast, yeah. Yeah, I don't even know. Has Jameson even appeared on the podcast yet? Maybe for, like, a panel or a page or something, but maybe not even oh, that much. Yeah, he's been he's in, like, a couple pages of the uh, Inferno stuff we covered. Um, but, yeah, this is our first, like, proper, like... I Yeah, I just like that he's, like... This also is... Peter Parker is a good photographer who looks like a shitty photographer because all of his photos are just him putting his, like, camera on a building and webbing it up there and hoping it captures something. Yeah, but like, like every single time in the comics when he actually just takes the time to take photos himself, the people who run a newspaper are always like, these are damn good photos. Yeah, and we get like that commentary here. He's like, you should do this instead. How, how do you normally take photos? Don't do that. Stop doing that. Yeah, but that's the wrap up. That's the conclusion to this story. Juggernaut and Black Tom are off to go do potential gay things for Black Tom's birthday. The X-Men peace out. Spider-Man gets his money. I guess, are there any elements of the issue you want to comment on before we wrap up that we didn't already get to? Nope, not really. Um, I'm reading from my physical copy, which has a very silly ad for Risk on the back. The board game? The board game, which might have been new. At this point in time, I don't know. Yeah. It does read like it's trying to explain to you what Risk actually is, so I'm like, wow, I think Risk was new. Does it have any of those ads that are like a page of comic panels that end in a superhero like advertising Little Debbie's or some sort of food? 
sadly, no, we don't get the the hostess fruit pies Spider Man. We do have um, like there's a couple ads where there's like Spider Man is just in the ad being like, but it's like a full page thing. So it's just Spider Man being like, hey, the Garcia fishing team, get Garcia fishing team membership. You can fish with Spider Man. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's just weird. Um, there's also an ad for the Marvel superheroes role playing game. Nice. The cover of which has Spider Man, Captain America, The Thing, and Captain Marvel. Specifically, the Monica Rambeau Captain Marvel because this was like her big era. Nice. Another like hyper specific moment for this comic. Yeah. It is always kind of interesting just seeing, like, dating a comic, a, like, big two comic by just, like, the slight differences and, like, which characters were relevant or not. Well, it's that, and then there's also, like, the aspect of, like, like, Spider-Man and X-Men, I know, like, the progression of, like, their stories through the years, especially because both of them I've read an obscene number of comics, right? Yeah. And then occasionally there's something where they meet up and I'm like, wait, wait, hang on. This thing that I think it was like really early days Spider-Man is like mid-days X-Men. I'm like, oh yeah, I guess 80s Spider-Man and 80s X-Men are happening at the same time. But I just never think of it that way. Because it's mostly cordoned off until it's Inferno tie-ins. Yeah, it's it's like there's this Inferno and Secret Wars, both of them, where they kind of meet up and that's it. And it's like, at the same time, it's stuff like the black suits happening, which, because of the order in which I've sort of read these characters, like, for me, most X-Men comics are relatively new, in that, like, I haven't read X-Men since I was a kid. I've read this, and then I went and I read more comics with Spider-Man in them, and not more comics with the X-Men. Because every time you look at the X-Men, you run into someone like Rachel Summers. But also, we didn't even explain the Hound shit, and she's already complicated. And so Kid Me avoided the X-Men. I avoided the X-Men until House of X Powers of Ten came out. I read the Grant Morrison stuff because I became obsessed with Grant Morrison. And I loved that. I'd read Dark Phoenix Saga and Days of Future Past. And unfortunately for me, I'd read the Weed and Cassidy stuff in Astonishing. And that's it. Until 2019. So it is just so strange to be like, oh yeah, this like bizarre moment in time that happened right post the original Secret Wars where there were four X-Men and like none of the four is, there's no Storm, there's no Wolverine, there's no Cyclops. Like normally you'd have at least one of them. Yeah. This is the weirdest team lineup of all time. But yeah, that was Marvel Team at 150. It was very important to me as a kid and i'm very glad that i have a physical copy again and with that that is the first week of our x-men coverage for the summer next week we are going to shift gears by almost 40 years we're going to be reading marvel's voices iceman infinity comic number one through four and mighty marvel holiday special Iceman's New Year's Resolutions, Infinity Comic Number 1. So, all of that comprising the entirety of the recent Iceman scrolly like, webcomics. We'll see you all then, and bye. Bye.